Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. We're getting rolling a little bit early, uh, but I, I have some thank yous and all that that I usually say, but I'm going to save for the end um, so we can just get into it. So let's recap where we are, taking you through the modern music industry in full. So you've gotten your art together. You set up your text list via community.com and your overall marketing channels were in place before you began recording. Plus you launched your pre-order or Patreon to monetize your music before it's even out. We've covered what you need to do legally around your music, in particular, ensuring everyone in the studio signs a work for hire agreement and you have a clear process to discuss and confirm songwriting splits. You've recorded your music, which is very exciting, and registered your songwriting with a performing rights organization and song trust or your publishing administrator. Last week, we dug in deep on the proper ways to distribute your music to receive the maximum amount of income while exploring where music distribution is headed via Web3. And yesterday we learned from Janae Brown, also known as the Beyonce of marketing, on how to market with or without a budget. So your release is now out there, and now it's time to play live or hit the road and webcast. So here we go. Today we're discussing your live strategy and efficient touring. To do so, there's no one I'd rather be speaking with than the icon that is Peter Shapiro. I'm just going to share a little bit about Peter for those of you that don't know. Peter is founder and CEO of Dayglobe Presents and so much more. He's owned and operated renowned venues such as Brooklyn Bowl right here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn Bowl Las Vegas, Brooklyn Bowl Nashville, Brooklyn Bowl Philadelphia, the Capitol Theater, Garcia's, and Wetlands Preserve. In 2015, he produced Fare Thee Well, celebrating 50 years of the Grateful Dead at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara and Chicago's Soldier Field. Shapiro founded Lock In, a four-day music and camping festival held in Nelson County, Virginia, as well as Jazz and Colors, an experiential music event held in Central Park and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. He's the creator of Fans, the immersive live streaming platform with its innovative Be In The Stream feature that allows audiences to tune in and appear alongside the artists. He also originated the Rock and Roll Playhouse, developing the family concert series into a weekly national series that takes place in over 25 markets across America. His other endeavors include the IMAX concert films, U2 3D and All Access, the Jammies Award Show, the, the Green Apple Earth Day Festival, and Easy Rider Live. Shapiro serves as publisher of Relics Magazine and sits on the board of a number of civic and charitable organizations, including the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum, New York Public Radio, and City Parks Foundation. In 2019, Peter was named Chairman of Headcount, one of the leading youth voter engagement and participation organizations in America. Let's welcome Peter Shapiro. Yeah. I feel tired. Absolutely. Nice job. Thanks for capturing it all. Absolutely. So I've been reading your book, The Music Never Stops, which I can't recommend more. Um, this is the best book I've ever read for anyone that is pursuing a career on the industry side. And but I, I will let Peter talk in a second. Um, but I want to share some blurbs for those who might not be aware of the magic that you've been making behind the scenes for decades. So from Phil Lesh of The Grateful Dead, Peter thinks like a musician. He understands the music I'm trying to make because he wants to create situations for that music that enhance the experience on many levels. Jimmy Fallon has said Peter, Shap Peter Shapiro is a unicorn. He has a magical, mythical quality to him. We met back in the day of wetlands. 
You never knew who you were going to see there. Some nights it could be Dave Matthews Band, the next night Toots and the Maytels, another night it's Pearl Jam. I don't know any venue that existed that could pull that off. I remember wondering who was behind this and who could make those nights happen, and that was Shapiro. Questlove said, I've given Peter 11th hour surprises like, how about a practice Usher show? Or can we organize a quickie Elvis Costello performance? Anyone else would have riddled me with bullets for taking such a grand idea and tossing it to him with seconds left to spare. But with Peter, it's always, oh man, I can't wait to get to it. And it's always magic. And you said, I understand that some venue owners stop thinking creatively once a show sells out, but I can't help myself. I'm always wondering what a fan would want to see, which is pretty easy to imagine because I am that fan, and the energy of trying to make something happen still fuels me to this day. So I, you know, I feel like you know, that quote I just said, and really taking care of everyone, which is a theme throughout your book, the artist, staff, crew, fans, industry, and more, is a huge lesson that I learned from Mike Luba when I was working for him, who's your dear friend, um, that all carry with me forever. You two obviously both operate that way, and it's really how all concert promoters need to be if they want if they want to be in it for the long term. And I love this. As you've said, there is no start or end. It just keeps going from the artist to the fans to the venue to the staff to the artist to the fans. And there's probably some fried chicken in there um, for those that don't know. You have. Thanks for doing all that research. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Like, I'm like pushing this on everyone. So, okay, here we go, finally. Where are you from? Here. I grew up in New York City. Um, that's probably helped me a bit because I, my first venue, Wetlands, I took over in 1996. Mm-hmm. It was your guys. I was 23. Mm-hmm. Um, 50 now. So I've been doing this every day pretty much for 27 years. And um, I still love it. Um, the lot, the show part, yeah. the daytime stuff, I was hard, but it definitely helped that I was from New York mm-hmm. when I did this first venue that was in Lower Manhattan in Tribeca. Just having that familiarity yeah. with the streets, with the neighborhood, with the city, with the people, having my own people mm-hmm. here, um, that helped me. Um, so that's something I would pass on, like for anyone looking to start. Yeah. It's good to start in a place where you're familiar. Yeah, so absolutely. It's the first good question. People don't usually ask that. You know, where are you from? And um, that's had positive impact on me that I tried that I was born in New York City. Yeah. Versus born maybe somewhere else. Wisconsin. Right. Wisconsin's <laughs> awesome, and Madison has spent time, and there's live music there. Yeah. But it's not. This it's probably not quite as easy. No. Right? It's having a venue in Madison, being from there. You just don't have that flow. For sure. Of touring bands, of shows, and people. Yeah, absolutely. So did you set out to be in the music industry, or did it happen organically, beginning with your Grateful Dead film in college and grow from there? Yeah, you nailed it. Mm -hmm. Um, Through high school, not really. I got into music a little bit senior year, towards the end. And it was more my friends leading it and, and going with them to things like Jane's Addiction, My Bloody Valentine, Lollapalooza. I went to my senior year of high school. I was not a dead guy. Got to college. I went to school in Chicago at Northwestern. Started like throwing Frisbee, playing hacky sack, being a little mini hip, neo hippie kind of thing, hanging out, playing Grateful Dead or hearing that music. Mm-hmm. And then I went to a Grateful Dead show 
my sophomore year of college in March of 1993. Um, and it changed my life. Basically, I had an experience where I was at Rosemont Horizon, which is an arena in Chicago. And um, I was at the show, and the Grateful Dead were playing. Second time I had seen them, and they had a spoken word uh, artist, Ken Nordeen, who started talking, why, why, and like the waves of audio were flowing through the arena. And I had, was in a headspace up here, and I left the sh I was just like, wow, like, what is going on? And somehow, and I don't know how I found my friends later because I didn't have a cell phone then. Mm -hmm. I was in the parking lot. The next thing I knew, I was in a dead show. It's snowing outside Chicago. And I saw all these kids that looked like me, 20. Upper middle class, middle upper middle class kids, suburban kid. I'm a city kid, but they were like not going back to college, not going home. They were like living in a school bus on the road, living like the 60s life drum circle you've seen that all like and we don't really see this much anymore it's not much around today like this moment and um all these hippie kids with a drum circle outside a school bus and i had never seen anything like that i was actually a film kid i was into video i grew up in the 90s early 90s when like video cameras these things now are video cameras we've all got one but in that day they were new and they were big like this big jbc he had a VHS tape, it was big. But I started playing around that. I had a public access TV show. I was always doing something, but it was about like my high school sports team, teams. And I was a film student in Northwestern. I went to study that. I went to study video, radio, TV, film. And I, I went to this show and I was like, wow. I've never seen anything like this Grateful Dead thing. I went back to college that night. I don't know how I got there, but or found my friends, because you don't have these phones. You had to coordinate meeting with people. You had to say, well, meet at Will Call at the front, and there'd be a board, and you'd leave a note. We did not have this, like, I'm outside now. I don't know how we did it. But I got to college. I went to the library the next morning. We talk in our business about being at doors, you know, where the people on a GA show want to be first because they run in to get to the rail, which is right at the edge of the stage, you see? Yeah, I was the only time in my life I was at doors in the library, 9 a.m. or 8 a.m., because I wanted to be first to research, like, what has been done on this crazy Grateful Dead thing I just saw. Mm -hmm. Forget about the band, like, the scene, the deadheads, people chasing the 60s and what it meant. Because if you were up in the 90s, not much like that, right. except for going on tour with the Grateful Dead. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started researching, and I found, like, one documentary film had been done by a sociology professor, very academic, and I was like, wow, I'm way into video. I'm going to find a kid with a video. I didn't have my own video camera. I, like, rent borrowed him. And I found Phil Brule, another film student at Northwestern. And he owned a video camera. And I was like, yo, you want it? We're going to go on dead tour this uh, in a couple months. We're going to get a van. You bring your camera. I'm going to get my parent. I'm, we're going to rent a van. And we're going to go on tour with these people like who were doing the drum circles and the scene and the cops and all the different elements that were there, the vendors, all the, fa all the crazy stuff was going on. And he was like, let's do it. And uh, it's in the, I think the book that I, like we rented an all white, we, we, re we rented a van, I remember when we returned it, 
it was like unlimited mileage, but they didn't think we'd really be driving around America, but we did. And the guy was like, what? We lived in this van, no windows. I also learned if you're going on dead tour in the parking lot, don't show up in an all-white van with no windows because they're going to think you're the cops. We first pearled in in Detroit for our first thing, documentary. We are going to make a documentary. Little Phil had was like 5'3", redheaded guy, and, and me, and we, we pulled in to the parking lot of Auburn Hills in Detroit, this arena, and everyone was like, yo, DEA, DEA, DEA. So we pulled, I'm like, Phil, pull out. So we drove down a couple blocks, parked, and we walked back in. We never got the band in our film, but we got like Timothy Leary, Ken Kesey, Wavy Gravy, Rock Scully, all these important people from the 60s and the beginning of the Grateful Dead talking about, and then on tour, we went to like, you can actually see it's on YouTube. It's called Miles to Go. If you go Miles to Go, Peach Bureau, it'll, it'll show up. And uh, so I made my own first film, video. Yeah. Video enabled. Before these video cameras in the 90s, you have to like shoot fit. That would have been hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and my university, this is relevant if you guys are students. I don't know. I got school credit. Nice. I mean, that was a big thing was utilizing the college years, the early years. Uh, when you're in your 20s to do stuff mm-hmm. and, um, and and because that's an opportunity to like try doing things with a safety net a little bit yeah. you know versus when you're out of college or you don't have a diversity be like I'm quit you know and and I'll tell one more story because it's good le- we, this is all about how to do this yeah. right? and learn we so I own Brooklyn Bowl we had this happened we had two kids or kids people in their 20s worked at Brooklyn Bowl mm-hmm. they both were like I'm in a band. A lot of people there are in bands and are bar, you know, yeah. servers, barbacks, work there. And they're like, my band got a tour, so I quit. Or one, one, they both, like, my band got a tour. One, you know, they went and met with HR, and they both had five-minute meetings in the office, three minutes, like, hey, I love working here. My band got a tour. We're going on the road for six weeks. We've been on tour. I quit. The other person goes in, has the meeting, say, my band got a tour. I'm going to be on the road for six weeks. I love it here. I might want to come back one day. Right. By the way, they both come back after the tour. Yeah. Everyone comes back. And they both like, I'm back. But one was just like Audi. Just, and the only difference, the other was like, I might want to come back. And the HR was like, when you come back, call me. Yeah. Think about that. They both went in there for the same three minutes. Mm-hmm. The only difference is how they said it. One comes back. The other was like, I'm out. And I, I, I think back, I am sure of it. One got advice from a parent or someone like me be like, yo, make sure you protect your ability to come back. The other person was just psyched about the tour. Like, I don't need any advice. Yeah. I'm out. I'm going on tour. Long game. Long game. Think about that. Those people went in. Nothing was different other than how they said the same three, the words they used in the first three in that three minute meeting. Um, so that, but that's the same. While you don't don't give it up, you want to try being a musician. If you can have a side hustle or a main hustle and side hustle being the musician and still have a job, whatever that is, or be in school or be, I recommend highly you do it that way. Versus, I don't need school. I'm done. I've had kids come like I'm not going to go to college. I'm a musician. I'm a senior in high school. I'm a hot shot. I'm just going to play gig. I'm like, you know, if you can be in school and do this, if you can have any kind of job. And record, tour, do anything on weekends. You know, keep that. Yeah. Any, keep try to do that on the multiple tracks yes. if you can. So true. 
Can you try and sum up wetlands and what made it so special that people still talk about it over 20 years later, which for context, you've said, wasn't necessarily the best place to see a show. It was the best place to experience a show. It's great. Um, wetlands was unique. It, it, it's almost like this room, which is a great room, you know, that maybe if we were full and sold out and we were selling tickets on both levels, not everyone upstairs would maybe be able to see the show. But it's got a good vibe. It can move around. And Wetlands, when it was full, you know, some of the people would be behind, like, these columns back there, and it couldn't have a full view. But they'd be hanging out in that back corner at that bar. They could hear a bunch of music and have a great hang. So they would meet people. So when we were sold out, 30% of the people, like, could not see the show but that would force them to the back in that bar or in the basement, which was the equivalent of upstairs. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of people, I just met a kid the other day, he's like, I exist because of wetlands. Yeah. My parents met at a show. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, yo, that's because wetlands forced people to kind of go to other areas and they met people. If you go to what's like a perfect sightline venue, which is still great, but like Music Hall Williamsburg's around here or a Bowery Ballroom, like, you, I, I great rooms, but I don't know if you meet your wife there or your right. husband there. Because you just stand there and watch the show. Yeah. You don't move around. So wetlands forced you to move around. It also forced us to, like, as staff, to treat people better, to create an, an, a vibe at the show that would offset the lack of perfect sight lines and the lack of full air conditioning and the lack of any video wall integration. And the lack of any food, like we, 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 we were short on some of that. Mm -hmm. So we worked harder to create a great vibe. And that's why Brooklyn Bowl, if you look at and it was a village. Like, mm -hmm. it was amazing. It's only 7,500, 8,000 square feet, but it had all these areas. Mm -hmm. So I'm real big in, like, venues having different areas to kind of hang, like this kind of place has. And, um, and Brooklyn Bowl, if anyone's been there, has kind of different areas. It's got great sight lines, but it's kind of got this other stuff going on. It integrates video in a big way. You know, back to my background, I'm a film guy. And so the venues, whether it's Brooklyn Bowl or the Capitol Theater, I love integrating visual into it. I'm less a bowling guy. Mm -hmm. Bowling's just about fun. Yeah. And New Orleans, we wanted to create a venue that felt like late night in New Orleans. And there's a place in New Orleans. We weren't first to do this integration. We just really more did it in a way that was, we just believed that um, if the we cannot do solo acoustic music at Brooklyn, it will not work. But basically we found that anything, once you do a really trio, anything rock, anything multi-artist, can't do comedy, can't do uh, solo, everything else works, and that the noise from a great PA offsets the noise. And then you have these screens at the end and they're like 130 feet, 150 feet from your eyes. And they're 100 feet wide because there are multiple of them the, at the end of the lanes. And that visual uh, layout, that physics, that layout makes it better. When you go to Irving Plaza or Webster Hall, if you guys know from shows, like a little screen here. Or if we were watching a show here and you had a little monitor there, it's cool. But it's not like a bank of 100 feet wide by 130 and huge screens. So... Part of the Brooklyn Bowl thing was my film background, video. And, and so when we have a band playing, you can see them playing with live video iMac on these screens. We go into close-ups of the guitar, yeah. yeah. So it's meant to be 
Um, it is a venue that lends itself really well to video integration, which, so that was part of the magic. Then we added uh, the village components in a restaurant area and different spots. We made sure we had the beautiful air conditioning sight lines. We added food, the blue ribbon food. And so it kind of was a creation of a place from a person who owned just a regular rock club. You know, I learned a lot from owning that. Just like you guys, when you do your first project, mm -hmm. you'll learn. And when you do your second one, you'll adjust, I think, in certain ways based on what you learned from the first one. Mm -hmm. So Brooklyn Bowl is definitely a creation of a place by someone who owned a rock club yeah. that was basic and, and even beyond. And by the way, here's one. When Wetlands was just a stage and a bar. When we opened and had a show that didn't sell a lot of tickets, you, it was hard, you, you just like, it's hard to catch up on a light night. People come in, they leave. When they don't see action, it's hard to retain them. And all the pressure was on the band because everyone was just coming to see the show. At Brooklyn Bowl, it's what's called a soft ticket. That's a hard ticket. A hard ticket's when everyone there is just by just to see the show. Yeah. Soft tickets, that's why music festivals are called soft tickets, as Emily knows. Because some people may be like, I'm just going to Lollapalooza. Or I'm just going gathering the vibe. I don't really, you know. And the band's one of 60, right? You're not alone selling a ticket alone. That's a hard ticket. Brooklyn Bowl became and unique, a concert, uh, a club. Most clubs are, are hard tickets. You know, people don't walk up to pay 20 bucks unless they know what's going on. That's a hard ticket. Brooklyn Bowl, because we had these other stuff going on, some people would just show up just to go and be like, I wanna go to Brooklyn Bowl. And because we had the revenue from bowling and food and other things, we could lower the ticket price. And once the ticket price came down to like 15 bucks on a week, people will drop 15, yeah. not worth. So we, we would on a Saturday still do, we have some people that are hard buying just for the band, and then we have hundreds of people coming just to hang. We can bring them. But that same man playing Brooklyn Bowl, we can pay them the same amount on a $15 ticket at Brooklyn Bowl because we have the other revenues. When they play Music Hall Williamsburg right here, it has to be like 25 or 30 bucks because there's no other revenue streams. There's no bowling. There's no food. It's just concert and drink. And it's 25 bucks. At 25, there's no walk-up. It's all a hard ticket. So that really, if you follow along, is the success what led to Brooklyn Ball bands wanting to play. You're going to make the same money. It's either 25 bucks or 15. You're getting five grand guarantee either way or four grand, whatever it is. Yeah. All the managers will be, and, and over here, it's 400 people in advance and then 400 walk-ups. Over at Music Hall, 25 bucks, even, let's say you can even get the 400 pay there. There's, zero, there's not a lot of walk-up just coming. No soft. So you're either playing 800 Making the same money or 400 making the same. Which one do you want to play? You got that's that one. <laughs> and then you're playing half the audience is just a walk up new. Mm -hmm. So you guys are learning. You want to play in front of new people. You want to open. You want, you know, you know, at 25 bucks, no, very few people are new. Mm -hmm. Everyone, most people have seen you before. Most people are aware of you. And you want to play in front of new people. So that, and that wasn't all thought out. I didn't sit there when we planned Brooklyn Bowl, be like, we're going to figure out, I mean, we, it just kind of happened. And that is really what led to Brooklyn Bowl um, becoming kind of a better widget 
for a rock club. And we didn't have many light night, um, dead nights because the bowling would, um, would supply a stream of humans that were there every week, all the time, a bunch. Versus the hard ticket, it's on you guys, you know? And if you're light, you'd open at 6, 7, and there's not a lot of people there, it's very hard to recover. At the other place, Brooklyn Bowl, there's people hanging, there's bowling, 7.30, there's people there. When people look are coming or they're telling their friends, yo, it's a scene, then it feeds itself. And more people come upon more people. Um, you mentioned a guarantee. I'm just going to move this so it doesn't tip. Um, what's a guarantee for those that don't know? You said, oh, you might get a four grand guarantee or five grand from... Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash sharefares to book. Restrictions may apply. It's just that you guys will start bands starting out. Usually it will be like a door deal. Like, you know, you get a percentage of the door, no risk to the venue. And by the way, you guys going out early, just tell the venue, the most will require it. I'll do a door deal. They'll, they'll count at the door if there are four bands. That's why they ask who you're here for. And they mark it. You'll pay on that. Um, you'll get paid on that. And then when you get bigger and you start drawing a bunch of people, you can get to a point where you can say to the venue, I need $1,000 guaranteed, mm -hmm. 2000 That's when you're later on, when you get an agent, and the agent will go on your behalf, like three, and it goes to five grand, 10, 20, Ed Sheeran now, or Pearl Jam, or the bigger arena bands. They're playing the garden, you're getting a million dollars, 500 grand, or 100 grand, and those are guarantees. And then there can be back end. If you sell out, you may get a bonus, and, but you'll start at a door deal, mm -hmm. and... Your goal is to get to a guarantee. And, and then the venue, right, guarantees that money. And if no one shows up, the venue loses, right? But you still get your guarantee no matter what. So that's really your goal. You want to just get to guarantee world. Yeah. Although I will say, as a former tour manager, so, like, if you have a $10,000 guarantee and the show tanks... Um, Matt Hickey would say to me, like, hey, can we, can we throw the promoter, like, a, a grand in, in settlement? And to me, that's such a reminder of, like, people don't remember what you did. It's how you made them feel. We've been there. We still sometimes, uh, Lucas Sachs, who books Broken Bowl, will say, hey, you know, I got, yeah, he'll ask yeah. for a, a little something back. Mm -hmm. And by the way, people remember that. Matt's with that Matt Hickey, someone I'm sure we've gone to. I know we have. Mm -hmm. And if you can give back a thousand or something, you do it because you know you're going back to that promoter. You're going back to that venue. It's a long memory. It's a long mm -hmm. game. I think yeah. you said. And so you, if you're, if you, that will help make the promoter feel better. Yes. Even if you're still lost, it's like we're on the same team. Yeah. You guys are with and, and getting it. That's why at the end of the day, developing a live career you want the venue to win because mm -hmm. when the venue wins then they'll have you back yeah exactly so back to your story although you knew your time running wetlands wouldn't be forever due to the lease situation you inherited did you realize while you were doing that work you wanted to be a concert promoter for the rest of your life 
Oof. No, I knew, you know, like I think you said before, I just got in it and it's just been going and there's ups and downs. Mm -hmm. That's why it was nice to hear your nice intro. Makes me feel better because I wake up, it's still hard. Yeah. This game, you know, it's still hard. Um, medium, if you're small, medium, big, I think still hard. In a lot of ways, it gets a bit easier when you're bigger. You know, I'm still off on my own a lot. You know, the biggest play, really, live music is really dominated more today than ever by a company called Live Nation you probably heard of that owns a lot of venues in pretty much every city mm-hmm. and in another company, AEG. But there's, there's not a lot of company people that do this at a bigger level, particularly really led by two, because it's hard. Yeah. When you win, you know, you win 10. And when you lose, you can lose 50. Mm-hmm. Just to use an example, if you get it. Like when you have a show that doesn't work, you can lose a lot of money, especially because when you get bigger at Brooklyn Bowl, most nights it's a guarantee. Yeah. Five grand, 10 grand, 15. If we come up short, you know, and now there's lots of competition. We do better in the winter, fall, winter, spring, is Brooklyn Bowl season. Now there's so many outdoor venues, yeah. right? In the middle of June, who wants to really go inside? Not as many people. Yeah. When it's snowing in February and it's 21 degrees, there's about seven things to do. You know, and one of them is go to a show at Brooklyn Bowl. In the summer, when it's 81 degrees, there's about 4,000 things to do, right? You can go to the Catskills. You can go to the East River here. You can go to Forest Hill. There's more venues than ever. So, but the indoor venue thing always slows. It's it's cyclical. It's seasonal. Um, But it's great. That's actually a good one for you guys. Even if you're playing a local bar, a small venue, like, Fall, winter, spring, better indoors. Summer, I mean, people are freer and have time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where, like, it's interesting. Like, in the winter, you want to play weekends. Yeah. In the summer, a Thursday is probably better than a weekend. Because on a Saturday, people are traveling or away. Your friends, like, you guys, those are just headline thoughts I would do. But um, I still, it's still hard. You still got to be thinking all the time. Um, things are always moving, changing. It's not a factory. We just talked about this the other day. Or like, it's not like making widgets where it's like each time you're making the same widget and shipping it out. It's, it's always moving around a bit. Um, and so you got to stay with it as it moves. Artists are canceling this. And, and, uh, but it's fine. It's mad. You know, those moments, especially during the show, there's nothing like the magic you get when a live show happens. And factories were, you know, don't give off that. Right, but it's always moving around. So I'll never forget the first time I set foot in Brooklyn Bowl during your pre-opening parties that you hosted. As I mentioned, I used to be a tour manager, so I've been to venues all over the world. I remember telling you how perfect the attention to detail was in every way, from the couches, to the bathroom, to the food, to the history of the building. What does Brooklyn Bowl mean to you coming up on its 15th anniversary and expanding nationwide? Um, Well, one thing I'll say just hearing that is like all the details matter also. Yeah. So we're really big on like the entry experience, the bathroom experience. And Wetlands had like rock and roll bathrooms when we built Brooklyn Bowl, especially the women's room, women lead. You know, if the women are happy, men follow. (laughs) That's just true. We also, most of the venues are run by women. I think mm-hmm. they're bad, you know, just 
more attention to detail, but like we made bathrooms, so we made the women's room with that lounge and like mm-hmm. a window. Um, we everything matters. I would tell you that. That's one reason why you're like always thinking, always adjusting, always changing because like box office security, bathroom, sound, lights are obvious, the food, the delivery of the food, the temperature, the volume, the light, all this adds up. And um, so Brooklyn Bowl became a great, honestly, widget. And now also the other thing is like in Las Vegas, we have a venue in Vegas. If the business is a cake, the whole cake is what's called private events, special events, parties, where people will be like 500 people, 1,000 people, open bar. That's real money. More money than, you know. But So wait, the business is a cake. The whole cake is private events. The concerts are sprinkles. And anyone who wants a good cake and has money wants sprinkles on the cake. So we do, we need the concerts to make the venue cool yeah. for people to want to rent it to do the privates. Mm-hmm. But the money is on the privates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everyone's paying for open bar, food, for a thousand people. 250 people don't even show up, but they still, you still pay for it. Another 250 people now, especially maybe don't drink. Mm-hmm. Or That's what's called margin. They're paying for the open bar. You don't even have to deliver on it. You only get that on privates. On a concert, the people that don't show up, you make nothing, obviously. The people that come in and don't drink, you're not making much. Because mm-hmm. most of the money off the door goes to the band. So you want to make money selling drinks when people don't drink. So in, listen, here in New York City, the local rock clubs, this thing, Music Hall, Williamsburg, they're not doing nearly as, it's not by owning, but in other places, it's interesting. Each one's got its own little situation. And the reality is now as a venue owner, the event side has become more and more important. Mm-hmm. And we created something with this Brooklyn Bowl where it's got the food. We can show screens. If you're having a birthday party, you can do cool visuals. If Questlove's coming to DJ, his bowl, Soul Train, he's going to love Soul. We can put the Soul Train videos up and he can spin to that. So those screens that we talked about, like, it's not, a, I mean, the bowling's nice, but it's about, we have a palette or a canvas. Mm-hmm. So if you're coming to me and saying, I want to do a party about my mom's 75th birthday, my anniversary, my 21st birthday, my kid's fifth birthday, we can utilize those screens and run video through them and run a slideshow through them. Think about that. It's incredibly powerful. If we went to the music hall Williamsburg, or Irving Plaza, Bowery Ballroom, if you guys have been to any of these shows, they don't have that. You got it. None of them. Mm-hmm. So, and they would charge you a lot if you asked to bring it in. Well, that, yeah. All oh, right. So it's all in-house. <laughs> yeah, you got right. it. By the way, for you to bring, you just need a little stick with your photos. You give it to our guy. Exactly. Yeah. It's all in-house. Mm-hmm. And we put the video cameras wired all in-house. If you want to stream, you want to film, we have that. You got it. We have these screens. But if you went to a hotel ballroom or another venue, by the way, the food, they don't have any kitchen. They have to cater it. Mm-hmm. That's expensive. We, we did an early event uh, back to the private for the Brooklyn Public Library. And they told us after. And we had the food and the production is there, right? Mm-hmm. When they make the speeches, the video, they said that they spent less to do their event, their gala to raise money. So you want to keep costs down at Brooklyn Bowl 
than they did doing it at the Brooklyn Public Library. Wow. Because they had to bring the catering in. Mm-hmm. They had to rent the production, the stick, the, the, the sound, the mic, all that. They had to build it. So we built something that was, again, back to like a good widget. Yeah. And then it's really good for privates. Mm-hmm. And it's good for shows because it became a soft ticket venue. Yeah. Right? There's people coming for fun. Mm-hmm. They're walking up and not just a hard ticket club. Yeah, that's 100%. So tell us what Fare Thee Well, celebrating 50 years of the Grateful Dead was for those who might be too young or don't have deadhead parents like me. And can you try to put into words what making such a massive and historic event for a band that is as important to the culture as they are to you means to you? Well, I'm a dead fan. You know, that's where a lot of it started for me. I did that. I went on tour. I made that film. And then the first club I took over, Wetlands, the owner saw that film. That's how I mean that. My story goes to that night. Without me being at that dead show, I don't, I don't go on dead tour. I don't make a film. And I don't meet Larry Block, who owned Wetlands. My friend, I don't. Mm-hmm. Now, while I definitely believe, I know it. If I hadn't gone that night, I, I wasn't on there. I was not about to go become a rock club owner at yeah. 23. So I make the dead film. And Larry Block, who owned this rock club based on the spirit of the Grateful Dead, and booking dead bands, cover bands, jam bands, was looking to pass on the club to someone, because it's hard. After seven years, he's like, I'm done. And these are venues open every night. Mm-hmm. It's like this morning, every morning there's a problem. Mm-hmm. The problems come to you, not just the good. I mean, the good stuff's, you know, hearing your introduction. <laughs> you know, when you get nice stuff. But that's not going to change tomorrow morning when there's a yeah. fucking bathroom overflows or someone quit like mm-hmm. that's why I'm like thanks because I need to hear that everyone's like yeah. it's still hard um, but Larry saw my film and knew that I loved the dead I just did the went on I had Keezy and maybe and he helped me he said you can pay me over time I'm gonna get he cool. gave me the club and I paid him monthly and uh, I just went for it. Love with the support of my dad, who was a lawyer, helped me. I, he was a tax lawyer. I didn't understand anything. I didn't even understand if I had a lawyer, what my lawyer was saying. You know? But um, I went for it. This was a well, like a thing. I, I also, Jerry Garcia and the dead had just passed away in 1995. This was 1996. And I knew, because I was on dead. these kids weren't going away, kids like me. They're turning 20. They're still going to be wanting to, like, listening to improvisational music, hang out, twirl, you know, throw Frisbee, hanging out. It, kids who are in Boulder, Portland, you, you know what I mean. You uh-huh. know those kids. They're not going away. They would just break up and go to um, the next version of the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. And that became like jam bands, you guys, or like Fish, or Dave Matthews, or Widespread Panic, or now Goose, Billy Strings, String Cheese, Disco Biscuits. That, I thought that would all happen. I did. I was like, mm-hmm. It's going to go somewhere. And then Wetlands was the home of that in New York. So I believe that there would be like a coming um, heavy flow of bands mm-hmm. after Jerry died. Yeah. Right, the next gen, not that hard to think through, to be honest. I don't, I don't know, know. hindsight's twenty twenty, but you're exactly right. You get what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're not like stringing, like Jerry's gone, they're not going away. All these yeah. people, the, and so I took over, I really fought to take over this great rock club in 1996. 
He gave it to me, and there's a staff of 50. I was the youngest. I was 23. So that's a good way of learning, like, how to deal with people when you're young, you know? I found Charlie Ryan, who was there, to be like, you Like I knew what I didn't know. Yeah. Or I, maybe I didn't. I knew I didn't know some a bunch. So you find people. Mm-hmm. Another theme I would give you guys, especially if you're going to go play gigs and try and be in a band, is, like, teammates. That's one nice thing about being in a band, unless you guys are doing solo, then it's a producer, it's a family member, a brother, sister, cousin, manager, bandmate. You know, all this stuff's easier doing it together with someone. So I've gone, you were doing that list of stuff, each one of those things, Lock-In, Relics, Jazz and Colors, Wetlands, Brooklyn Balls, with capital different people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe someone who's in a band with you, maybe someone who's helping you knows someone at a venue, knows someone at a studio, knows someone at a label, you know, someone knows someone. Like, so that cross-vortexing is really important. Yep. You know, just to try, who do I know? Who do I maybe know, you know? Maybe my uncle maybe knows someone or could help me or invest in me, like, um, so that's all really important, and I tried to use that. Now back to like New York, when I went to go take over. I don't think Larry Block gives me sells me Wetlands at 23 years old. If I was not from New York City, mm. I think he knew that that I at least I was young and didn't know a lot, but I knew I was from that land. I was from that city. If I had come in from Wisconsin, like Emily, you know, like I'm from Wisconsin. I'm here two months, you know. I'm 23. I can. He. I don't. I think. It, I don't think I get it. Right. Here's another one I did. Uh, this is more. Little was naive, and probably today, you know, people would go to him. The bigger companies called SFX then, and John Share, Metropol, who had been doing this a long time. They all because Wetlands was famous. They'd be like, Hey, Larry, let us see the books. Like the numbers, and he'd be like, "No, this place is world famous. Here's the, I'm giving it for very cheap. Here's the rent number, twenty three. You know, you figure out if you want it or not." Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Go fuck yourself." Yeah. Which today I'd probably say if someone said no books, you'd say no way. And uh, but back then I was so young. I'm like, okay, what's the rent? What's like the water bill, the garbage bill, all these like fixed costs? He gave me, and I said to my, you know, when you have a new business. You're doing projections. Yeah. You know, you don't know the numbers when you're starting new. So I kind of took a tack, like, okay, I'm still going to try and do this. I know the rent. I know this. And, uh, and that got me wetlands. Because everyone else, when he was like, no, I'm not sharing the books, you either believe. He was looking for someone who believed. Yeah. And would be like, yeah, I'm giving it to you. The rent's this. Can you make wetlands work? And I was like, yeah. And then he's like, okay, then you get it. That's how I kind of, that helped me, that belief, you know. And I don't know today if someone said that. Now more, I might be like, nah. But uh, I was getting going, and um, it was a unique situation. Sometimes people do say, like, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. And I just had a unique path that well. But you got to keep your eye open, maybe start yeah. doing things, and you'll see that mm, things may open up. There may be paths. You'll have lots of, like, V uh, yields, and then you got to pick left or right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go left, go left, and then right, and you'll make you'll just keep your eye out for opportunities 
that may come by that you will realize or not even realize. Just keep your eye out and you'll be like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Keep trying. You'll get knocked down. It won't work. Even then, it'll work a few times and then you'll get knocked down. Um, we still get knocked down. I still, you know. But, um, and you'll keep trying to make decisions. Talk it out with people. Mm-hmm. Get advice. Remember those two kids at Brooklyn Ball. One, for sure, I don't need advice. I quit. I got told. The other one, for sure, yeah. I'm sure I talked to a parent who was like, you should, before you just quit, you should think through, you should just say you love it here in case you want to mm-hmm. come back. That's what that kid, that kid came back, got a job. Yeah. Then I think about that. So mm-hmm. talking through things like, yo, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? You know, you have to figure out who you talk to about that. A professor, a teacher, a parent, a cousin, a friend, doesn't matter. Talk it out. I talk shit out all the time. So mm-hmm. I just was walking in here. You saw me. I was yeah. on the phone with one of my people just talking shit out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just in your brain. Yep. So Luckily, I have a bunch of people who work for me with me who have to take my call. So. <laughs> Which you mentioned in your book are all over the country, so you can reach them right. anytime you have an you idea. Really did a good I love this book. I'm obsessed. Okay, so you say in the book, and you've alluded to this, I have found that long-term success comes from your response to when things go awry. So what's an example? I mean, there, there's that, there's... It's so true in live shows. And I also want to call back to when we had um, Run the Jewels co-manager, Amichi Uzigwe, on the podcast in uh, season one. If you look at his LinkedIn, it's like success, off success, off success. But when you talk to him, oh, my gosh, what that guy's been through. So what's an example of... um, I feel the same listening to your introduction. It sounds great, but it's been hard. Yeah. So so what's, you know, you know, you said... Uh, you found that long-term success comes from your response when things go awry. So what's an example? Yeah, keep your that? head up. Yeah. I mean, just like this thing walking in today, we're dealing with something that's like something that's a challenge yeah. about talking it out. Mm-hmm. You guys will get knocked down. You'll play a gig. No one will show up. You know, you'll record, make a recording. No one will listen. You know, I'm sure it's, it's so competitive, so crowded. Keep trying. You know, it's like, how do you adjust? How do you respond? It's hard. You might want to curl up in bed and not get out. Right? We all have been there. I mean, Amici, run the Jewels co-manager, talked about He's like, I was in my brother's basement in like 2011, wanted to hide from the industry. You know, it was like, I, I don't, I mean, even though it's public, what happened, I mean, his ex-wife passed away. He raised these two girls himself, you know, and it's, he's just going through all this. And then he'd been managing LP since the 90s. And then when he's in that dark place, LP hooks up with Killer Mike and run the Jewels forms and all this stuff happens yeah you just uh it's not all puppies and rainbows no it's hard work or fake rainbows right yeah keep smile you know try to get up do it again yeah keep a side hug keep that job on the side right get a job or some kind of thing so that when you have a setback it doesn't totally crush it yeah you know um you know, because that, that's back to that. I think it makes a big difference um, when you can be trying things. Because you're going to need to try it again and again and then adjust and again. And you even look at, you know, I know the Ed Sheeran. I just use an app because I know he's got a story of starting. He was playing alone in a bar. All these guys, sure. everyone pretty much was. 
You just got to wait for that lucky moment. Mm-hmm. You know, it may take years. You guys want to do this? Yeah, it takes a while. And then you build it. And by the way, with experience, mm-hmm. it gets, a, it does, never gets easy. I don't even know if I put this in there. This might be for the next book. It, <laughs> it, I have a good line. It, 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 it gets easier. But it never, it never gets easy, but it gets easier. Just with reps, experience, yeah. time, like just doing gigs, doing recording, doing show, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it gets, you'll learn, you know, oh, I remember when this happened, so now I'm going to do it this way. Um, so you guys are just starting. So, you know, you, you, this is the hardest part. And for me, a wetland's just starting with you don't know anything. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest part. I mean, also when you get bigger, it's harder because you've got all types of issues flying around. Yeah. But um, you're in the hard part, to be honest. Actually, in venues, it's hardest like running a small rock club alone because it's 600 person rock club. Or I actually have a piece of advice like if you guys go do a gig at a local bar and 10, 20 people come, you still go through the process. If you can book that gig yourself, you know, market that gig yourself, you know, sell any tickets yourself, do the show, the load in or the, you know, the, the pr- presentation of the show. You might be playing, you might be a promoter and then the settlement yourself and get paid a hundred bucks. That's still that process that you guys, that you went through with those steps I described. That's similar if it's 10 people, a hundred people, a thousand. If it's 10,000, you still got to book the venue, rent the venue, Book the band, give yourself, announce the show, promote the show, sell the tickets, put on the show, do the box office. Even if it's 10, 20 people, you're still collecting money. You have a couple of people on guest list. You know, you did a sound check, you, right? You, you advanced the show. With, all those things are, have similarities. 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000. So now as a venue owner at our 600-person rock club, you still need a production manager managing the equipment. You need a booker who booked the band. You need a marketing person who like marketing the shows, social media posts, like be posting on Instagram, Twitter, doing a TikTok with the art for the show. That you, you still need to do that 10 people, 1,000 to 10,000, which makes it almost easier in some ways when you're bigger and sell more tickets. You have more, it's easier to have more people to do that. Mm-hmm. When you're doing it smaller, like you guys now doing a show, or when I started, well, you got to do the social media. You have to book the show. You got to advance. The, you have to do it all. So it's actually harder. Yeah. So sorry. You know? <laughs> but you're in the hard part now. Um, but also don't be sorry, because um, when I was tour managing Dresden Dolls and we were opening for Nine Inch Nails, I had lunch with one of the lighting guys, and he said to me, do you know why our production manager is so good um, at his job? And I was like 22 or 20. I was like, no. Um, and he said, because he's done all our jobs before. And so you've done that. Like, yeah. you've cleaned the bathrooms. You've booked the show. You've advanced the show. Also, not to jump around, you mentioned uh, settlement. What's settling? What does that word mean? So it's set at the end of the night, right? You drew 21 people at 15 bucks. So that'd be... And I can do this stuff in my math. That should be 315 bucks. Um, you get good at the head math. Um, and let's say the door deal is probably 80, 20, 70, 30 to you. 
So you'll sit there with the venue. They'll take their 30% of 315, and you'll get the difference. And then you might have to pay out your band. You may have to give 100 bucks to the sound guy. That venue might pay the sound guy. But the settlement is going over how much the venue owes you. It's called settling. And that happens at the end of the night. Advancing, if you book your own show, will be talking to the venue in advance and be like, I need, they may, you know, you could ask if they have backline. And backline would be like, this drum kit's backline because it lives here. The venue has it. This room, that's pretty right, has mm-hmm. backline. Yeah. This guitar, it looks like it lives here. They may be like, we have no backline. So then you have to bring it in. Um, and advancing is talking about with the production manager of the venue. What, and by the way, if you're just learning that word, it's a good word to use. Like, do you have any backline? Mm-hmm. And if it, it's just, or, and if not, they'll tell you no. And, but, you know, we have these amps. You'll say, what do you need? I need a B3, you know, or I'll just bring my guitar. Advancing is just advancing and talking about what the equipment needs are for the show. Um, and then you'll go in early to sound check. And that could be local Irish bar back to the 20 people. You still want to do a sound check no matter what, if you can. That'll usually be in the mid-afternoon before the show. You know, don't ask them to come in too early. They won't like that. If you say, I'd like to come at 11 a.m. or noon because they go try to do it at 3 or 4. That's usually when it is. Small venue, medium venue, large venue, all the same. And uh, that sound check. And then there's something called a rider, which in your first gigs will probably have nothing on it, right? Because a little rock club. But as you get bigger, a rider would be like, or maybe you'll get water on your first one. Waters, six waters, 12 waters, they'll tell you. Maybe you get some M&Ms. Mm-hmm. As you get bigger, you can ask for green M&Ms. Which, why do people do that? Because that is kind of like a pop culture joke, but why? Uh, th- sometimes the test is green M&Ms to test to see if they're reading the rider. Yeah. Right, isn't that like... The attention this, to detail. The attention to see versus, oh, we didn't even notice because we're not reading it. Here's a salami plate and some water. Yeah. As the bands get bigger and they move to bigger rooms, the riders get more complex. And if it's an arena band, you know, then they can ask for Dom Perignon, you know, I want fried chicken from Blue Ribbon. You know, you can ask for more particular things. Yeah. And it might sound like diva stuff, but even like doing this event, like I said to my podcast manager, there has to be a clock in my sight line. Otherwise, I have no idea what's going on. I don't want to be looking at my watch. I also, we're going to add end tables. So I'm not like reaching to the ground. I added that for you today. You know, don't need you like reaching to the ground. So anyway, all, th- this stuff's important. Oh, it works. These yeah. are small things, but look, I right. put my wallet, my glasses. <laughs> These are small things, but remember back to like details matter. Yeah. I came out to do this thing. Otherwise, it would have been on the ground. Like, I appreciate that. The water's right here. Small things. Let me tell you, it's all, the whole thing is an amalgamation of small things. Yeah. And you know, when you go to a show and there's a long line at the bar, long line at the bathroom, long line at the box office, that could throw off your juju. You know, and then once you're, you know, you get in a bad mood, you know, you wait too long, little thing of, one part goes wrong in a live experience, it could take the whole thing down. That's for sure. People then go a little bit sideways. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I'm sure you get this all the time. Like, oh, that your job's so cool, you know? And it's like, 
if you go to a great show and the sound is awesome and it's a great experience, you just have a great time. Like, no one, people are like, yeah, that was great. But when something goes wrong, that's when you hear about it. That's the not fun part. And that's when you got to stay steady. Yeah. We talked about try to stay even. Things mm-hmm. are going wrong. You know, weather's hard. If you guys yep. ever play an outdoor gig, you do it in your backyard. My first event was the Hamlin Street Block Party. I did it in college. Yeah. Back to this all. And, like, we had pretty good weather, but I remember being nervous. Rain. Sure. You cannot control the weather. Mm-hmm. It's rough when it rains. All, everything starts to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Things take longer. Right? Load in. That's another word we've used. We're yep. talking about load. Load in is just bringing the equipment in. Mm-hmm. to sound check in the daytime. You know, they might have someone there to open the door. <laughs> they might have someone there to open the door and help you bring it in. Yeah. You should offer, like, I'll carry my amp. You know, people, I think, don't whatever the size of the venue, they'd appreciate that versus here's my amp. Can you carry it in? Mm-hmm. Again, when you get to the bigger level, Capitol Theater, thousands of people or arenas, then they'll have crew there to, like, take all your stuff, and you'll probably have your own crew. Mm-hmm. But when you're starting, you are the crew. It's, so exer- it's exercise. Sorry to interrupt. That's what I used to say on the road. I didn't, I didn't mind loading. But also you're saying when you're rolling up, like part of your advance should be who's my day of show contact and what is their mobile number? Because you could be advancing with someone else who's not there and then it's freezing and raining and you're just standing outside. And, and another term we talked about like advancing, load in, sound check settlement, announcing. Yeah. You want to be coordinated with the venue. That's right. For announcing your show. I mean, you guys, we're, we're in probably early, smaller shows. We can say, hey, we're going to do it on Thursday. As you get bigger, it'll be like Thursday at noon. Yep. And you will coordinate with the venue, your posts, and then you'll hit all the platforms. Mm-hmm. So you're hitting like our venues or, you know, obviously you have a TikTok, Instagram, uh, now TikTok, obviously huge, and you'll do something. The most powerful is the email, in our experience. The email list. If you guys can build for your band an email list, it could start at 10 emails to put your friends on. You know, because opt-in email is the most effective way to communicate information about a show. So, uh, and you want the venue to include your show on their email. Yep. Do you want them to post? You want them to do a native but dedicated post for your show? Um, but you really want to be included in the email. They probably will not do a dedicated email for you. You'll be in a weekly email. Most venues are weeklies and they list shows. If you can get in there, our experience in our venues is that's the most effective way to communicate that you're playing and have it. Yeah. And to that point on announcing, get in the habit, you know, when you are booking your own shows, like when, you know, when do we announce? When do we go on sale? Because like, is, you know, Peter going to kick you out of his room if you leak the show? No. Um, But if you're on Coachella and you leak that you're playing before, you know, some bigger festivals might be like, no, that was part of the deal. You know, like their big reveal is the lineup. So just get in that, you know, that was a really good point on um, announcing. So, you know, you mentioned texting, email, social media. You've been at the forefront of technology throughout your career. For a guy that defines live, what has piqued your interest from 3D to live streaming and more when it comes to tech? Well, you mentioned 3D. That was just an effort to like, you know, live music. You don't see it on TV. When I grew up, it was on television more. 
like channels like Bravo, A&E, MTV, VH1, PBS even had a lot of live music on them. Shows, you remember, VH1 Divas or PBS O Bravo or A&E Live by Request. You'd see live shows. Um, VH1 and MTV was live performances all the time. They barely, they don't even show videos. It's all right. So live music's off TV. You know, I think the flat screen, even streaming, it was much bigger during COVID. Yeah. Live streaming concert, bigger, softer now, lighter. Um, so when I played around in doing technology, because I love that, and 3D and breaking through, and, you know, I actually have a meeting after this about virtual reality right. and shooting live music in VR cool. to kind of break through because it doesn't, it's nice on here, and it's better than nothing, but it's, it's not like... And that's one nice thing in a virtual, um, in this technology-advanced world. Live music, the experience of going to a show cannot be replaced. Mm-hmm. Right? We live in a world where a lot's being replaced. Mm-hmm. We live in a world where you can stay at home and just watch Netflix. And watch TV, but someone once said about me, like, my Netflix is in my head. Like... Don't lose that. To make this work for you guys, you got to be thinking, dreaming, you know, lie down, look at the ceiling at the end of the day and like have that now because you got, it takes energy to like game it out. But one nice thing we're seeing post COVID is nothing replicates the light. Nothing ever will, right? You still got to be, you got to be there yep. to feel it. And, and actually live music doesn't really work that well through this mm-hmm. stuff. We work better than nothing we do it it's cool to watch yeah. but it'll be interesting if the new vision pro the apple thing kind of mm-hmm. these goggle stuff can take you closer in the experience than just a phone or a tv um, but one nice thing is live will never be replaced by technology you gotta like go to the show yeah 100 percent. this episode is brought to you by paramount plus Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Activism has always been intertwined in your career from your days at Wetlands, giving proceeds to environmental justice to your record-breaking contributions registering music fans to vote at Headcount. Why is making the world a better place important to you beyond just producing epic concerts and events? Well, I come from wetlands and the whole dead thing. And I think that's why those kids in 1993 in the parking lot we talked about, they were chasing, like, music started uh, rock and roll in the 60s with meaning, social justice. The 60s, summer of love, like... And uh, Wetlands was a pre-internet place, and the idea of Wetlands was run by a hippie, you know, Grateful Dead hippie, was to utilize this space to help organize, to let nonprofit organizations organize. Like if you were Amnesty International, Rainforest Action Network, and you wanted to get people organized, there was no meetup.org. There was no Instagram, make a post, say, if you want to get involved in this thing, come, let's talk, or come do a chat, or we'll do a Zoom. There was come meet here, Thursday at 8, because it's 1990, 89. And so that was the idea of Wetlands, was where are young people going to come together, the library, you know, the park, the school, or the club, the rock club, 
And people would come to the rock club before the show to organize, to meet about an issue. And when, I, when he gave me the club, part of the way I got it was I said, I'll continue that. I actually signed a piece of paper that we would give a percentage of our money to hire people who did these meetings. So that was a big part. And so I learned firsthand seeing that you could be at the show, but also have information on the walls, meetings before the show, and organize and be about something. Yeah. So we took that, we created something called Headcount that was to utilize young people being at shows signing up to vote. That's when it started 20 years ago. And now we do some broader participation kind of stuff, but it's still, and now like Billie Eilish, Ariana Grande, Harry Styles, the, the acts that perform particularly to some younger audiences, we have a presence there. You might see a table at an arena show, headcount. And it's just like trying to do something positive while you're having fun. Yeah. You know, you can still do, we might as well try. Like we, we, we have a big hill in front of us. Yeah. It's not easy out there. But we might as well try and do something positive. So that's where headcount comes from. Love it. It's New York Music Month, and your book is such a beautiful journey down memory lane for so many of us. What does New York City mean to you as someone who grew up here, has created, created experiences for so many, and chose to raise their family here? Oh, I, I'm still in it. Yeah. So I don't really get to sit back and be like, oh, this, I'm still building it. Yeah. Still not haven't made the ton of, you know, one day maybe I'll sell it all and then think about that. Mm-hmm. But right now I'm still fighting. You know, trying to get people to come to this show or doing this or that. Like, you're in it. Yeah. So once you're in it that much, I don't think you're really, you're not stopping and be like, oh, I've got my family, this, right? You're just waking up back in the bat, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll bet if you ask Mike Luba there, our friend, who also is like me doing show, like, had success, he's probably also like, what? Like, I, he's just so in it. Yeah. Um, Mike Luba is my mentor, just FYI. And so you guys are in it to you're here. Yeah. By the way, that's a good start, I'd say. I do. I believe that. Yeah. That the fact anyone who's just here showed up 11 a.m., it's yeah. a weekday, and you come, you don't have to be here. But you could have just stayed home. You could be out in the park nice day. Yeah. So honestly, the fact that anyone who's in this room, just to hear about even if, uh, you, that's the kind of step and kind of thing you need to do yeah. um, to just navigate it and it doesn't really stop for better or worse i mean it's fun but like even when you get to here we're still in it figuring it out so true you say in your book you're better at regulating stress these days a bit how do you do so well i just did a workout yeah i love to hear that walk a lot Mm -hmm. walk on the phone a lot go to shows still and uh, the shows are still great fun. That never fades. Yeah. For me, a live music experience, I still love going to the shows, whether it's my own or go- particularly even going to shows that are not mine. Because mm-hmm. you're not looking around for all the problems. Yeah. You're not looking around for everything that's going wrong. You're just, you can relax a little more. So mm-hmm. for me, I still love going to live. That hasn't faded really at all. Yeah. Um, and it's even remarkable to me, Grateful Dead music or jamming, like, never fades for mm-hmm. me i you know and uh you guys whoever's your favorite you know you'll love it and i love going to cover bands i don't need to see i like going to the big shows but for me whether it's small medium big it can still work yeah you know as long as it's good um and that's one cool thing 
the live thing, you'll see it just doesn't fade. We're humans. Yeah. I think we need that. 100%. And you mentioned before, you know, it's so interesting because I used to give this advice when I was managing artists. You say in your book, you should not let yourself get too high or too low. Stay in the middle. So I just really wanted to echo. That was very validating to me because, like I said, I felt that way as a manager for a long time. And you've definitely, you know, mentioned this. You can't see it if you're not there. And you guys are here, which is awesome. Um, so we're just going to spend a few minutes digging in on some nuts and bolts on booking and, and promoting a show. And then we'll open it up to you guys. So the title of this episode is Your Live Strategy and Efficient Touring. And, you know, the first chapter of the book this podcast is based on is called Get Your Art Together. And I feel the same way when it comes to the live space with regard to practice makes perfect. So what is the importance of, you know, like one of your smaller rooms like Garcia's and, and other smaller rooms within venues you've owned to develop talent? Why, like, why is that significant? Why is that important? Oh, like... We have bands that headline with Cap now who started at Garcia's, like Goose is even a new band. That, you know, so it's great to be involved as bands emerge and start. It's hard to do that at Brooklyn Bowl, which is yeah. 900 Cap, <laughs> and have a band come and do 30 feet. You know, the baby bands don't, you know. And that's the thing. If you guys want to get it going, people are always like, well, what do I need to do? Yeah. You know, you're in two different worlds. You're in a digital world. Mm -hmm. You're in a Spotify world on the left hand for recording, trying to use technology, digital, socials, to get people to do listens, which is digital. And then you're in an analog side, which yeah. is going to sh shows, which is just sell it. How many people come? That's all it's going to be. And get your friends. If you guys are ever playing a club, it's no problem if 10 people come, 20. You can't have a zero. Yeah. You can have a guest list. You can have your mom. Like, if I were you guys and playing a gig somewhere, I'd have your mom or your brother or your cousin or your friends buy a $10 ticket, $20 yeah. ticket. Just to show you have a couple tickets sold. Yep. Uh, we'll start at the beginning, five tickets. It's better than zero. Don't go in and do zero sold. Yeah. And if you're going to do zero or five, then have some guests come. But if you can have your friend, if people are ever like, what can I do? Buy a ticket. That's, that's the favor. Yeah. What can I do? Buy a ticket. Because the venue is going to notice. Yeah. And selling any kind of tickets will help you. And... So we see that, like you asked, like we have small, we, have, we don't have a lot of small rooms, but Garcia's, it's, oh, it's Bob Dylan's agent. I may have to take this. I mean, you can take it if you need. We can take so a set break. Hey, buddy. Peter Shapiro, Hi. everyone. I'm good. Kind of inside, but I saw this news so I I'd like that. I'd like that. We have free liquid Kirk. death back there. Do you remember Kirk Peterson? You know Kirk. Yeah, I'm going to text it to you right now. Thank you, buddy. It's out of, that's why I picked it up. You ready? I'm in the, I'm in the middle of speaking to a group, a class about music. But they don't know, but I was like, you know what? <laughs> I know I'm going back. I'm going back. I'm texting you, Kirk's number. Welcome to the music Two business. nights, Bob Dylan, it was that. Yeah. That's bad. I took it. See, you got to move in the moment, and now I told him I would text him someone's number to get on it. And that's another one. No matter what you're doing, maybe sometimes you got to pick it up. 100%. You can keep going. 
Okay. Well, you know, let, let's talk about that for a second. Can you talk about Bob Dylan's significance to the Capitol Theater, uh, which you... Is that really your next question? No. <laughs> <laughs> he played our opening night, which is cool. Um, when we reopened it, September 4th, 2012. Um, and he loves the venue, and he's Bob Dylan. You know, that's why you do this for, like, moment. And you can see now I'm feeling smiling. It's like uh, <laughs> hit a dope of whatever energy. Sure, yeah. You know? When you get a good show... You're feeling good or you have a shot at it. And when you lose one, and we lost one last night, you get bummed out. Yeah. Still. So it's up and down. Which is why you don't want to get too high. Straight. In the yeah. yeah. Which is, Which is not easy, easy to say yeah. and harder to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's really important, you know, to try to keep your um, energy straight. For sure. So if an artist is approaching you or one of your talent buyers, what's appealing to them? Like, what do you want to see? How about a short email? What is someone's, oh, yeah, shorter. Yeah, don't go too long. You know what you want to see? That they sell tickets. Yes, that's yeah. the answer I'm looking for. Was it? Yeah, yeah, honestly. Mm-hmm. We, you know, lots of email and people say, listen to this. Yeah. I hate to say it, for our role is to present music with people in the room. And that's why get people out. Ask your friends to come. Put them on the guest list. If someone will buy a ticket, great. But even a guest list. Get a mixed crowd, not just dudes. You know, by the way, if you can get women or men, you know, the others follow for sure. And just a great, diverse, good group of people. If they'll buy a drink, great. Doesn't matter if they don't. But just any kind of human being. They should be over 21 if you can, you know. Some shows are 18 plus, but it's better. Um, really try to, and then you can write a note to a talent buyer and be like, I want to come play. And write that in the front. I'm going to deliver people. I can deliver people. Even if it's not a huge, again, start small. Yeah. Get your reps in. I've done, it says in about 10,000 shows. Started small. Still do small, you know, just. Nothing wrong with starting small. You'll get experience. You'll learn how to play. Don't start too big. Don't try. How about if an artist says to like, this is my only show in the market and it's special because it's my release show or it's a unique collaboration? Great. Yes. Anything you can add to make it sound like, yeah. you know, it's my artist release. I'm going to put extra uh, yeah. energy. I have a hundred followers, a thousand social followers. Maybe outline you have all that find, maybe go to the venue, mm-hmm. say hi to the booker in person, say hi to the manager in person, be like, hey, I'm this, I'm here, I've got a band, I'd love to play, I'm going to draw, I'm going to bring all my friends. Yeah. You can play, listen, uh, that's probably more important to the booker, I hate to say it, mm-hmm. I'm going to bring all my friends, when I'm from, then my music's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's true. You could be the Beatles. Like, do you sell tickets? That's why you're here. You guys are learning, you know, just be like, I can get my friend. And that's why I do it when you're in college or you're young. Being social, being out there, mm-hmm. going to shows, that's all helpful. We talked about being in a team. Yeah. You know, if you don't have a ton of friends, but you have a drummer who does, great. Yeah. I'm not kidding. Let the drummer get everyone out. Mm-hmm. You have a cousin. I'm, I'm, that's a benefit of being in a band. You know, get everyone in the band to get their friends. If everyone in the band... You know, there's five people in the band, and they'll each get four people to buy a ticket. You just sold 20 tickets. 
that might get you booked again. Yeah. I have a friend that sold out Mer- Mercury Lounge, and she's like, my mom is here. My grandmother is here. I mean, she's from Westchester, so she just packed it out, you know? Along those same lines, you know, well, I hear from artists all the time, like, if I can just get an agent, you know, I'll get on the road. So what are booking agents looking for? People who sell tickets. You know, so you'll do it on your own at first, and then you'll want to get an agent. An agent might get noticed. You noticed because you sell tickets or your stream numbers certainly can help too. But at first, it's just going to be you on your own. Back to your relationships. Who do you know in Boston? If you're band members, some of them can be from other places in the country and in the Northeast. So we have someone from Philly or... Maybe my cousin's in Boston and has a friend who works at this play. You know, that'll help. Obviously, doing everything online and digital and socials all will help. That'll help you sell organic tickets just on their own. You know, and then you want to augment that through your own relationships. And that will lead to the booking agent. That's down the line. When you're really going, you'll get an agent. Um, and and you, that may take a while, which is okay. Yeah, and an agent's going to expect you to sell 100, 200, 300, 500 tickets in your home market. So it's like, even if you're from Milwaukee, and I know this means nothing to anyone here, but you're playing like Turner Hall, you're playing a big like thousand cap room. They're like, great, what are your ticket, what are your hard ticket counts in Chicago? What are your hard ticket counts in Minneapolis? And they're actually going to expect that a little bit regionally too. So in my experience, I mean, obviously booking agents love music, but like they're spreadsheet people. Are you selling the tickets? So I also hear from artists like, oh, if I can get a booking agent, I'll get support slots. So how, how, do, how do artists get support that's slots? The best, that's the thing you want, number one. Number one. Oh, sorry. And what does support slot mean? I should Opening. define that. Yeah. You want to open for anyone. If you guys have a friend who's got traction, who's drawing, get an opening slot. Number one, back to Brooklyn Bowl. We became popular because it was like you could play and 400 people were there no matter what. We used to joke. You could say, you could put Emily White and Pete Shapiro on stage on a Saturday in the winter at Brooklyn Ball. It's serious. And there's 400 people there mm-hmm. because they paid 15 to go hang, bowl, yeah. the food. And you want to play in front of new people. Mm-hmm. That's the number one thing. That back to like, that's why. At the bowl, you could play in front of new people who just, because it was only 15 bucks, they, they don't know who you are. But they're like, you're good. At Irving Plaza, once it's 25, 30, you know, it's hard to get new people, but you could open for someone who sold out music hall at 30. Mm-hmm. And if you can play in front of someone, it'd be great. Any friend and co-bill, by the way, you guys have friends who are also in a band, a different band, go together yeah. to that venue and say, I want to come play. I'm going to play with this band. Also, we're going to do a co-bill. They're going to open. You can get two other bands. You could go to someone and say, I have a three-band bill built for you. We're each going to bring 30 people. That's 90. Mm-hmm. They each, everyone, three bands times four or five each. If you could pull that off, call it five, which would be amazing. That's 15. Yeah. If everyone sells five tickets each, that's 75 tickets. You'll get booked again. You said a really significant word, too, with, with regard to getting opening slots, friends. You know, like, you know, get together with other friends and tour and play shows. Like, people want to, like, touring is traveling. So people want to travel and go on the road with people they like. Like, the vast majority of support slots, well, all support slots are ultimately decided by the headlining artist, right? So it's cultivating. It's what you guys are doing now, right? Like, it's cultivating those genuine uh, artist-to-artist relationships. 
Um, so just two last questions for me, and then um, we'll open it up to the audience. Uh, you know, VIP packages have really exploded at all levels. So what are the best, which is a great revenue stream for artists, what are the best VIP artist packages you've seen at any level? Oh, the best? Well, they're getting really creative now and expensive for big shows, mm -hmm. you know, but meet the artist, you know, or watching a special part of the venue, you know, now they come with food, drink, um, a special T-shirt, a special poster for VIP, a special hang area, a pre-game hang. Come watch Soundcheck. Come get into the venue first, early entry. These are all VIP type of things that people are offering. Um, meet and greet after, photo with the artist, signed book, signed poster. Those are all things that then you can lift the ticket for. And it's, yeah. that's usually with artists who are established and playing the bigger venues. We don't get as much of that like at Brooklyn Bowl as we will at the Capitol Theater. Sure. Brooklyn Bowl's 900 to Caps 2000. You see more of that and then even more at arenas. But we're, when we do a GA open floor, early entry is good because people will pay to get in early and run to the rail. And we do some at Brooklyn Bowl, come in early and watch Soundcheck. Yeah. So all that's now available. And it's ultimately, ultimately the stuff you'd want as a fan, right? Like, yeah, a lot of this is helpful that I'm a fan. And yeah. I think about it. But that's become a bigger part of this. But it won't help you when you're just trying to sell 30 tickets in a local bar, you know, yeah. venue that's going to be more helpful downstream or just that you guys have an understanding of this stuff would be great. Absolutely. So your badass wife is also a force in the industry as a VP at Shorefire, one of the top PR firms uh, in the music industry. How do you guys find balance because you're both like doing so much? It's hard. I mean, that's back to staying here. Yeah. And you guys, if you have a loved one and they could be in music or not, it doesn't really matter, but trying to stay when you're bummed out because you didn't get a gig or you're bummed out because you played and no one showed up. You know, when you come home, just do your best to stay here because maybe you'll get a phone call and uh, Bob Dylan will want to play, yeah. you know? And uh, life is just ups and downs. And you just got to keep going, keep fighting. Exactly. Keep going, wake up, get out, be like, something good's going to happen. That's right. You keep maneuvering, adjusting, and just give it your best shot. Absolutely. So we've got about nine minutes for questions um, before we let Peter go, and then I'm going to make you stick around a little bit longer to dig in a little bit more on nuts and bolts on booking and promoting a show. But if you have a question, come up to the audience mic over here and introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks. means a lot. Hello. Uh, are we on here? Yep. Oh, there we go. Uh, my name is Taurus. I'm from 333 Music, and we're called the Funktastics. We're like a duo of singers, dancers, and we play some live instrumentation in our show, but there's some backing tracks. So we've been working on putting together a new album, and in that process, at the beginning of this year, we got a booking agent in Los Angeles called Breakpoint Booking. And they have like Kiki Palmer and a lot of these different artists that are in the soul, hip hop genre. So the funny thing is that now we have a booking agent 
before we are doing the shows, although we have experience doing, doing shows and we're rehearsing now and putting together the live experience. But my question that you touched on earlier would be, what can we do right now to impress our booking agent in New York City and also build our fan base here? Uh, I, I guess I want to say not, not quickly, but we want to prove to our booking agent that we're viable, you know what I mean? And that we're, that we're thriving because they believe in us already. We're on the website and everything now, which was... Well, they let you just book some of your own shows here? Yeah, yeah. I would try to book a show here on yeah. a Saturday night, you know, in a yeah. smaller venue and yeah. invite all your friends out. Yeah. Give them a fucking hell of a time. Yeah. Maybe try an opening slot. Maybe ask the agent if they can help you get on any bill. You'll take no money, small money. You know, yeah. you'll just want to play so you can get video. Yeah. That, that's, that's the other thing. If you ever get a gig, video it, you know, if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know how dialed in your agent. They got to be pretty dialed because they got key, you know. Yeah. Any kind of opening slot, you know, any kind of video you can create and any kind of show you can do here. Put yourself on a weekend. Don't put it on a weekday. Yeah. I think summer's a lot harder unless it's an outdoor and and maybe a soft ticket show. Mm -hmm. So playing the White Plains Music Fest, Yonkers Fest, you know, outdoor where they're looking for fun. We would call it like it sounds like your band would fit well with some of those soft ticket festival where they're looking for fun mm-hmm. for a lot of like dance music you know not looking for a solo acoustic folk artist right. you know at a festival that's fun you know mm-hmm. um, so keeping your eye out for that then calling the, the event and saying hey we're the Funktastics I think it's what, yeah. you know and if you have a video of it and say yeah. we, we, we want to come we can play you know a 45 minute hour set we have originals we do covers I'm sure you do a couple mm-hmm. covers we're a 10-piece, whatever, we have dancers, we'll yeah. play for 500, you know, any of that. Yeah. But anything your agent can get you on, any kind of soft-ticket festival thing, any mm-hmm. festival gig, oh, playing first would be amazing. Yeah. Anything at any club venue that you see, like, opening would be amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, having videos help. Yeah. You, know, you can do music, but showing your show. Because yeah. the video has the audio and the video, right? You're showing yeah. it and they can hear it mm-hmm. versus sending a Spotify link. I, I think video is a lot better. Yeah. And that's Creating what we're trying a video. to Yeah. And, and that's what we're trying to do right now. Like this first show that we do, we want to be able to capture it so that we can put together something that shows exactly what our stage show was like. Because right. our agent saw a uh, sort of like a music video that we put together and then they saw the history of what we were already doing and that's what convinced them to bring us on. But yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to put together this first show that we can film and get put together really nicely so we can kind of show what the Funktastics is because a lot of people don't really understand it until they see it. One other thought, I don't know if you want to, you don't have to keep it forever, but to, for a while it's maybe a tagline. Yeah. A subtitle like Funktastics, you know, bringing the funk to the new generation or bring the funk home or i don't know what it is but funk adding a little more to the funktastics yeah yeah you know and and by the way if you get going you're drawing that you know you don't have to keep it i wonder if parliament funkadelic ever had a tat you know bring in the funk but i my gut would be maybe you you add a little descriptor Mm -hmm. descriptive line underneath the funktastics that reflects what you just said you know how great 
And, you know, a combination of dance, music, dance, and always the funk or whatever it is, or musical funk, dance, dance funk, you know? And how can you be different? Yeah. Now, you mentioned dancers to me. Yeah. That popped out to me. Yeah. That is different than just a funk band. Right. So putting that in the description, because if he's on the phone, hey, I got the Funktastics. Yeah. That may not say it as much as, much, as it yeah. really is. Yeah. We've been using the next generation of funk, like what's in our music, that like movie voices in our music. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, so the, yeah, yeah, the funk comes around again. Thank you the so next much. Gener- what? Oh, I was just saying thank you so much for that, because now I'm definitely going to do that. <laughs> That was good. That's why you came. I would also say give your booking agent some tools, like if you're landing any press hits, syncs, you know, any other buzz that's going to get them excited that they can share uh, with promoters. Any other questions for Peter? Erin's shaking her head no because she knows I'm going to call her out. Um, I have one last question. Oh, great. Yeah, come on up. Oh, April. Yeah. Try to make it short because Peter has to run in a few. Very short, I promise. And, and April's a great <laughs> photographer if you guys need, anyone, need anyone at Brooklyn Bowl. Yeah, I'm the system three photographer, also a tour manager and work at a record label. Um, I'm curious about the paywalls to purchasing VIP and ticket packages that I've been seeing popping up mm. all over the place. Um, the best example I found recently was Big Time Rush announced their headline tour. Um, and a lot of the VIP and tickets sold to their fan club that you have to pay like $70 a year for. Where do you see the future of that going? Do you think it'll be more? It's part of prevalent? the game. Yeah, I think that whole membership club kind of thing is where culture whether it's nonprofits museums um i'm on the board of new york public radio or city parks foundation which is summer stage and they're doing more and more membership programs vip is just going to be part of this you know which by the way opens opportunities for you guys with jobs and different parts of this live economy, right? There's a live music. There's just like 10, 20 years ago, you couldn't go work at VIP. Mm-hmm. And it augments the revenue because it's so expensive to do this, you know? But that stuff will really becomes into play when you're already established, right? Because it's an emerging band. No one's paying for the VIP. Right. There is no VIP. Right. There's no real VIP at the club, you know, really baby band stuff. Once you start selling out shows, things, then some of your fans are going to be like, I'll pay extra to come to Soundcheck. I'll pay extra for a poster. But when you're a baby band, there may not even be a... Try to make a poster, by the way. The Funktastics, like, share the first gig you get, you're going to film it. I'd make a poster. Get the art, make it digital, share it. I would do that. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Last question. And actually, while you're coming, I have a two-second question. How far in advance are your rooms booking out right now post-pandemic, roughly? Like, how far in advance? We're six months out. Okay, great. Thank you. Come on up. Months out. Smaller venues. By the way, halls open. Are we booking something in three weeks on a Tuesday in July? Yes. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi, I'm Marina. Look for those holes. 
You guys wanted a bigger venue? Like, hey, we could be sorry. But... <laughs> um, I'm Marina. I'm currently an intern at BMI, and I'm a rising junior at Middlebury College, also a singer-songwriter myself. Um, but I'm wondering, also, I'm a student right now, so I'm wondering how you feel like your education at Northwestern helped you and maybe gave you a leg up throughout your time in the industry? Well, um, good question. Well, I studied radio, TV, film, poli-sci, those film music kids, you know, a lot of the, the kids were culturally attuned, artistic. At, where you are in Middlebury, you know, I know I'm sure there's some similar cool kids like or kids who are into music like you. Listen, you have Burlington, not that far. It's a little far. Maybe there's little bars I know, like you, it, in Middlebury is a little small, you know. So you'd have to go out to Burlington, you know, where there's opportunities to intern at higher ground, or right? That's where you um, and just seek them out. It's hard, but maybe go in Middlebury. I don't know if there's ever a performance at the Middlebury Inn, or I know Middlebury a little, or like any place, go there, and you know what? Lean in to say hi to someone. Mm-hmm. Lean in at the bar, hey, or, you know, or post on a Craigslist. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, if you look, it's amazing how many bands. Nirvana, or U2. If you look at U2 starting, they put up a post at the school. Put up a piece of paper at Middlebury in the area where they put it, looking for bandmate. Looking for band. I swear, I think you never know it comes back. I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's an online digital world, but putting those pieces of paper up, looking for, you know, may help you find. That's the biggest thing in Northwestern. I found was like people finding the kid to go on the road to do the dead film with me. And then also going to my professor to get him to agree to help me get student credit. If Middlebury senior year will give you student credit, then you can do some kind of project that is, again, with a net because you're doing it through college versus waiting until you're done with college. Yep. Thank you so much. And I know Laura Walker, the head of your school, right? Is Middlebury, is Laura Walker the head of, anyways, she was the head of New York. Go find Laura. I think it's, um, it's, it's, um, it may be the other college in Vermont I'm thinking about, sorry. Well, I just, I want to echo what you were saying before, too. Take advantage of the resources that are in-house. So, like, when Aaron's class and I produce a festival on campus, I'm like, uh, does the on-campus venue have insurance? Yes. You know, like, we get free food. We don't have to, I'm like, you guys, take advantage of this. This is totally. awesome. Literally, totally. I love it. Totally. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your insight. It means it's great so much. you guys are here. Yeah. I mean, that's a good start. Absolutely. And Emily knows what's up. Yeah, I mean, we just get a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, so, um, awesome. Good luck. Well, have Fantastic. a great, yeah, have a great time tonight. Yeah. And, and we'll be in touch. And like tonight, like I'm going, I'm going to the uh, Gogo Bordello as a movie about them at Tribeca, and I'm going, and we'll exactly. see. And like, go to film screenings, go to concert screenings, go out. You guys, yeah. if you look at the history of rock and roll and these bands that get together, you know, they meet. Out and I ran into this guy. I met him, and I put. You know, it takes a village. It is a team. It's very rare that it's like I did it all on my own. Yeah. Do your best, and if you're not an outgoing social person, you might find someone who you get along with who is. Mm-hmm. You guys are a team. You know, it's much easier to try to do it as a team. Just the fact that you guys showed up at this thing in the morning, like yeah. that's you're on your way. That's step one. I love it. Thank you, Peter. Yep. 
So stick around. I'm going to keep you guys for like 15 more minutes. We're just going to rip through um, a few more uh, booking and promoting basics uh, one-on-one. And th thanks so much to Brad, too. Appreciate it. Yeah, great to meet you. Okay, so when you reach out to a venue, you want to reach out as early as possible, as you heard from Peter. Um, you know, Brooklyn Bowl and his rooms are booking like six months out. Sometimes bigger venues can book a year out. Post-pandemic, there was such a bottleneck of traffic. Sometimes it was like 18 months out. Um, so the, the talent buyer is going to come back to you and say, okay, your fifth hold for this date or your 10th hold or your 15th hold. Um, because a lot of times national booking agents are holding a whole bunch of dates because they're still routing their tour. A lot of times they're trying to find their anchor date. And anchor's often going to be like your hometown show, you know, the city or market that you know you sell the most amount of tickets, right? So um, say your fifth hold for a date. Um, the terminology you want to use next if you're ready to go for that Friday night in October or whatever is, um, Aaron, your instincts are correct. If you don't mind closing the door. Thank you. Maybe that wasn't your instincts, but it looked like it. Okay. Um, so say your fifth hold and you're ready to go for that date, you're going to say, um, I would like to challenge for that date. And so what that means is the talent buyer is going to go back to the first hold and say, okay, you have a challenge for the date. You have 24 hours to confirm or release the date. And like I said, a lot of national booking agents are often holding more than one date. So they're like, that's cool. Actually, we want to go for that Saturday so we can release it. Okay. So then the talent buyer, venue, promoter, sometimes these folks are interchangeable. Sometimes um, they're all different people, um, depending on the size of the venue. They're going to come back to you um, with an offer. And Peter mentioned door deals. Um, door deals are actually where you're going to make the most money. So whether you're getting 90% of ticket sales at dollar one, $80%, 70%, um, if you know you crush in your hometown, you're going to make more money um, than if you get a guarantee. Because if you get a guarantee, you're going to get, say, like a $1,000 guarantee, and then you're going to get 85% after expenses are recouped. So that means you need to sell $1,000 worth of tickets. You need to make the venues rent back. You need to make the venues, uh, whatever they're paying the crew and the sound people and the towels and the catering and all of that. So um, it's not as like sexy or exciting, but 90% of dollar one, you know, of all the money is better than recouping some expenses that might be real or not real, right? Um, but as you grow, you know, the reason artists want to take guarantees, even, you know, like Peter said, at, at like the million dollar level or whatever, is because um, then you know how much money you will definitely get and you can start booking hotels and at the higher level, like hiring your crew and you know, like, okay, we have X amount, um, you know, for expenses and food and gas and, and all of that. So great. Okay. So um, once you have your deal sorted out, um, then, you know, like we said, you want to say, um, when, uh, when can we announce this show and when can we go on sale? And a lot of times, I'm just making this up, but a lot of times, you know, rooms like Peter's rooms might be like, okay, we announce shows on Tuesdays every week and we go on sale on Fridays. And that way, like the fans of Brooklyn Bowl or the fans of that venue know that and, and they can count on that. And like I said, get in that habit because you don't want to leak your own news, um, you know, at, at a festival and, and get thrown off a major festival because you leaked um, that you were on it, even though, you know, you're obviously well-intentioned 
and excited. So once you have that information, okay, this is when we're announcing, this is when we're going on sale, um, it's time to promote your shows. And, you know, Peter talked about email lists. That's a huge theme of this podcast. Text list, you know, your community.com text list. Um, those direct-to-fan communications uh, are the most effective. And then, of course, your social media announcements. And, and we talked about this <coughs> with June yesterday. But um, tag the venues. Tag the other artists you're playing, right? Like, if you are working super hard promoting a show but not tagging Brooklyn Bowl and your show tanks, like, Peter and his team are going to be like, well, they didn't they didn't promote the show. They didn't care, right? But if you are, like, hustling and working it and really pushing the show and the show doesn't do that well, it's like, you know what? Like, they put the effort in. I'm going to give them a second chance next time, you know? So, and also, like, it literally helps the promotion. I remember... Um, I was biking on one of the first beautiful days of the year over the Williamsburg Bridge to see a band at Pianos. And I said, I'll just show the band. They won't care. Um, You know, excited to see at the Big Sleep uh, at Pianos. And then Pianos retweeted me to their 50,000 followers. And I remember thinking, I wish they would retweet the band, you know? So, um, yeah, so just get in the habit so these things can be added to stories and um, the word can be spread, which can't happen if you're not... Um, tagging. So also after you confirm a show, um, you can say to uh, whoever your contact is at the venue, um, do you have a press list that we could um, use to service a press release? Some venues are just going to give you their local press list. And this is really handy if you're touring, right? Because you don't know the writers in Cleveland or whatever. Um, But also say, or can we give you a press release that you guys service because some venues don't want to give out their press contacts? but they're going to appreciate that you did the legwork and all they have to do is press send. Um, Another thing you can do is entice your fans to push the show for you. Um, So you could post the ticket link um, for your tour on social media and say, anyone that shares this, adds it to story, comments, retweets, is entered in a drawing to be on the guest list, right? And then you're incentivizing your fans to promote and push out the show. That's also a great thing. If, If you're not doing that already, it's a great thing to keep in the back of your mind. If Peter or a promoter comes to you and is like, and is like, hey, you know, is there anything else we can do to push this show? Like the advanced sales are low, it's not doing well. I feel like in my experience, the standard industry answer is like, okay, we'll tell the publicist, we'll tell the radio team. Well, if doing that always meant selling tickets, then everybody would just do it, right? So let the promoter know what I just said. Hey, why don't we run a viral campaign? post the tour link, um, ask the fans to share it on social, and then they will be entered in drawing to wit. Promoters are always really impressed <laughs> by this too. I mean, we, wa- we obviously want you to sell tickets and we want the word to spread. Um, but, you know, like I said, a lot of times it's not always uh, what you do, it's how you make people feel. Um, and you want these folks remembering you. I mean, Peter is an icon, but it's just like, imagine like playing um, Wetlands back in the day, you know, and then now he's got Brooklyn Bowl and now, you know, he's producing all these huge festivals. So, you know, you want to do right by uh, promoters. Um, You know, you guys tend to know if any, if uh, in real life street teams are effective in your market. So that's another way you can empower your fans, Um, you know, give them posters, flyers, postcards um, to get out to coffee shops, anywhere that it's okay, you know, to post that stuff. Have, and you pay for all that, and have them take, you pay for the materials, have them take photos, 
send them to you, and then um, they'll get to be on the guest list. So that's another way to really empower your, your super fans to spread the word. Um, we're going to talk about more. We're going to talk more about this in next week's, in our next episode next week. Uh, but make sure you have merch, you know, like if you've ever been to a show and you want to support the artists and then they have nothing for sale, like that's always a huge bummer. Um, and also don't forget data collection, you know, make sure you're collecting as many mobile phone numbers through your community.com list at the merch table. Same with your email list. You can give out, you know, a, a button badge sticker, um, for folks that sign up. It's also a nice icebreaker at the merch table. So when folks are mulling around, you can be like, Hey, do you want to sign, you know, join our text list? Do you want to join our email list? Um, and you know, Peter really reiterated, uh, the power of, of direct to fan, and uh, you could also ask uh, the venues you're working with if they will share email addresses of ticket buyers, uh, of your ticket buyers, right? Like, because you're the artist and some are going to say no, but some are going to say yes. So you really want to be like an anteater for email addresses and fan mobile phone numbers. Um, so when you're, you know, that's how you book, that's how you book and promote a local show. And like I said, like you don't want to be playing every night. You want to focus in on, on your show. Um, I think, you know, if you know what a radius clause is, that means like you can't play the market a few weeks before or, or a few weeks after. I feel like radius clauses kind of get a bad um, rap. And, and I get it. There are some festivals uh, that are like you can't play L.A. for a year or whatever, and, and artists get frustrated by that. Um, but not playing the market a few weeks before, a few weeks after is actually to your advantage. Um, because like, what was the answer to so many questions? Like sell tickets, right? So you want to be selling as many tickets as possible, not selling 20 here, 30 there, 10 that you're like, no, I can do a hundred all at Mercury Lounge. So you can keep growing, um, and building your live presence. But once you've built that up, um, you can start expanding uh, by touring regionally. And we're here in New York City where you're in a, a great location because we've got Philadelphia super close. We've got Boston close. You've got the whole eastern seaboard. And in fact, um, I always botch this stat from Mar Martin Adkins' wonderful book, Tour Smart, but you'll get the idea. Like 80% of the top touring market, the biggest touring markets are east of the Mississippi. So you might think like, oh, I want to play LA or you want to play San Francisco. I mean, Peter talked about how many unlimited miles they racked up on that van, right? And like as a tour manager, I've, you know, uh, been on buses or driven across the country many times. The United States is big. And so it's very expensive to get across the country. So maybe focus on, you know, like East Coast or East of the Mississippi because you're going to hit more places instead of just like the vast <laughs> middle of the country that um, never seems to end when you're, when you're driving across it. But when you have a solid draw, use metrics when you are reaching out to other artists in nearby cities to set up gig swaps. So instead of just like taking a look at an old spreadsheet of like, oh, okay, here's some artists in Boston or here's some artists in Philadelphia, go to chart metric and you can type in any city and type and, and it'll spit out um, the top trending artists on Spotify, YouTube and Instagram in each city or any Google Maps location, right? So, um, you know, we mentioned I'm originally from Milwaukee. I remember 
downloading the top trending artists from Milwaukee for our I Voted Festival because we book per the data instead of just like booking what we think is like what we think people will like. And, you know, the the press darlings that I'd heard of that are kind of the Milwaukee artists to watch at South by Southwest were way at the bottom of the list. They didn't really have a lot of fans. But then it was like a Latin hip hop group called Quinto Soul completely crushing it with tons of fans way at the top. You know what I mean? So reach out. You want to open for Quinto Soul. You don't want to open for the guy who can take a creative press shot with the piano in the river, right? Because Quinto Soul actually has fans. So what I'm trying to say is look at the data on chart metric, reach out to artists in those cities and say, hey, I draw 100 tickets in New York City. Would you like to come open for me? I mean, who wouldn't? You know, it's New York City. Um, and could I come open for you in Boston or Philadelphia, um, et cetera? So really um, use metrics and also um, use metrics to guide the way with your national bookings too. You know, that's something that I um, wanted to mention, you know, to Peter is like, I wonder how often talent buyers are hearing, um, you know, Brooklyn is my number one market or Omaha is my number one market, like per metrics, right? Instead of just like, I'm awesome. Here's my links. Check me out. You know what I mean? Like lead with the power of data and also use that data for your own bookings, right? So I feel like when I was coming up in the industry, like booking agents would just book like the 10 same cities, the 10 same clubs or whatever. But like go into those metrics. Like, are you really going off in Vegas? Are you going off in Charlotte? You know what I mean? And then again, that's really powerful, appealing info, in my opinion, um, when you're reaching out to venues and talent buyers. Like, hey, Charlotte is actually our number one city over New York, London, you know, LA, Nashville, et cetera. Um, and same with international. Um, you know, I've definitely worked with artists that, you know, traditionally do well in those traditional markets, New York, uh, Nashville, London. But then they're, you know, I see that their numbers are massive in Southeast Asia or in South America. And then I reach out to the agents and then they come back with like really lucrative tours. You know, there's people everywhere and everyone uh, loves music. Um, also, don't discount, you know, um, setting up house shows. Um, you know, Peter mentioned private gigs, playing colleges. This is also really nice if when you do score one of those opening slots, um, even though it's like you've been working, working, working to land those opening slots, you're going to get paid um, either usually 100 bucks, 250 bucks, or $500. And that means you're, you're likely uh, losing money. Um, so I mentioned when I was tour managing the Dresden Dolls and we were opening for Nine Inch Nails, um, we were making 500 bucks a night. We had to rent a tour bus that we couldn't afford um, to keep up with their routing. And this was a long time ago, and that tour bus cost 1000 bucks a day. Um, now it's going to be, you know, closer to 1500 bucks a day. Um, so, but we would fill it in with, like, okay, 10 grand, you know, show at American University or a private show or something. So um, I've had up-and-coming artists do that, too, like play a graduation, play a birthday party or whatever, and then that helps to offset... Um, you know, their, their costs when they're on a larger support tour, even though that's, that's very exciting. Um, you know, keep live streaming and, and webcasting in mind too. I mean, I know that shift or that space exploded during the pandemic. Um, and it's certainly shifting, but it's great to take care of fans. Look, it's hard to get people, you know, out the door, parking, get a babysitter, all that. Um, so, you know, pop on Instagram Live once in a while, pop on Twitch, and then maybe build into a donation or ticketed 
um, you know, webcast as, as well. Uh, you know, I know a lot of the Jamier artists use Nugs. Um, there's platforms like, oh, we really like Veeps a lot. That's who we're working with right now at I Voted. Um, there's also Volume, which season two of this podcast was on. Um, so there's still some really great players in the space. Um, yeah, and then just a couple more things. Um, maximizing tour profits. So as you start to get bigger, um, maybe keep in mind, do you need um, that extra bell and whistle or not? Like, I need that clock there. I really like having this end table here. But do you need a tech for every musician? Do you need a tech for every um, instrument, right? Because um, I remember... Um, I was in Australia on tour once and Ben Folds came to the show and I have no idea why this came up. Um, but he talked about how, um, he was given two tour budgets, one with a bus and I just shared how expensive tour buses are and one with a van and, and with a van, he would come back with an extra six figures. He's like, well, I'm going to roll up to Jimmy Fallon in a, in a van, you know, like I if it's good enough for Ben Folds, it's good enough for the rest of us. So maybe, you know, as you start to have crew members, maybe they're down to share hotel rooms, but like get paid a little bit more. Um, I feel like the Dresden Dolls, the band I really came up with, um, did a good job of that. Um, when they were first starting out, they had a sound person and then they added me as a young tour manager. We added a merch person as they got bigger. We did have a monitor tech who kind of doubled as a, a backline gear tech and we had a lighting person, but I don't think they ever um, added any crew members beyond that. We didn't have a keyboard tech and a drum tech and, you know, all these other uh, bells and whistles because then they come home with uh, more money and you can also pay your team and, and your crew a little bit more. Um, finally, well, two last things actually. Um, recording your shows. I feel like that is a revenue stream that um, folks don't take advantage of nearly enough. Um, in the pre-digital era, you would not have the rights to do that if um, because you needed to be signed to record and distribute and um, labels would legally block you from recording your shows. And then also we didn't really have the technology, you know, it would take a, you know, more complicated setup in the pre-digital era. So I understand why folks are hesitant to record their shows. Like we're all our worst critics and it's like, oh my gosh, my voice wasn't perfect or, or I messed up. But like, um, think about the fan experience, you know, like you can just put the recordings up on your website for donation or for subscription It doesn't, or, or as part of your Patreon as something exclusive. It doesn't have to be anything too wild. But again, think about the fans. It's like, oh my gosh, I yelled Brooklyn then, or oh my gosh, they said this or whatever. It, it's that custom, um, you know, once in a lifetime. Yeah, exactly. Unique experience. And, you know, again, I'm just going to keep saying this, um, make sure you're collecting data at the merch table, right? And then don't forget to import that data. Um, but Zoe Keating talks about in the book, she just puts up a poster board of her text list number, and then people can just join. And then she doesn't have to import that into the list. So um, yeah, does anyone have any questions on booking or promoting a show? I also did a deep dive on that, a really deep dive on that in... Um, this episode in season two, and that was with um, Matt Berenger from the Pap Cedar Group, which is our big concert promoter in Milwaukee, um, as well as a VP at Summerfest, which is one of the largest festivals in America. So if you have questions, let me know. If not, you know, that's very well covered. Um, it looks like we don't have questions, so we'll just wrap up. Oh, yeah, yeah, get up there. Yeah. 
Um, so my question is... And who are you again? Hey, I'm I know Trevor. you're an A-plus Yeah, listener. I've been here. Trevor, uh, aspiring musical artist. My question is, when you're touring in, like, the same city, is yeah. it important to, like, market your show as, like, different? Because you have one show, it seems like, you know, you say you can draw a lot of people, but then yeah. would the people want to come to the same show if it's the same show? So is that important, being like, this show's different because it's this? You know? What kind of music do you make again? Like rock or okay. uh, pop? I would say yes. And I think, like, I don't even listen to jammy music, but I feel like there's so much to learn from that scene. Like, I'm going to have a special guest. I'm going to do some sort of cover. I'm going to be debuting some sort of thing. So I would say, like, you know your audience and you guys know your genres. Um, so maybe, like, you know, you might not want to veer, like, too far out. Um, but I think mixing it up to, or I'm doing an album in full or I'm doing some sort of special thing. Yeah, I, I think that can definitely be enticing. Yeah, great question. Um, so I just want to do my thank yous that I usually do at the beginning of this episode, um, but I wanted to be mindful of Peter's time. So huge thanks to the New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment for making the season happen. This live podcast taping is a part of New York Music Month, the official celebration of New York City's vibrant and dynamic music ecosystem. June also means it's Pride Month. I want to deeply thank our partners over at the Ally Coalition for supporting us and the crucial work they're doing. Founded in 2013 by Jack and Rachel Antonoff, the Ally Coalition provides critical support for organizations dedicated to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth and raises awareness about the systematic inequalities facing the LGBTQ population. The Ally Coalition is committed to bettering the lives of LGBTQ youth through tours, social media campaigns, and collaborative partnerships. To learn more on how you can get involved, visit theallycoalition.org.